Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. On the podcast today, I have a Royal Marines Commando veteran who has served in Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan. He is also one of a handful of people to row the Atlantic Ocean as a team and more impressively, on his own. After losing his right leg below the knee whilst helping at a scene of an accident on the M3 motorway, he believed that he had lost all purpose in life, but through courage and cheerfulness under the face of adversity, overcame all of his physical and mental demons. Please enjoy part one of my conversation with a truly inspirational character, a voice that would melt butter, Lee Spencer. Lee Spencer, welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thanks for having me. Uh, what have you been up to? Um, well, same as everybody else, uh, everything's up in the air. Um, I've spent the summer uh, building stuff in my garden. I'm building a bar at the moment, which is a far cry from where I wanted to be, and that was kayaking the length of the Amazon. So that's been postponed to next year. Um, and realistically, I think next year's a bit optimistic, so it might be the year after. Yeah. What what made you want to kayak the length of the Amazon? Someone asked me. <laughs> oh, Rich, is yeah. that? Why would you not want to do that? Yeah, so... Uh, when I first time I rode across the Atlantic um, with a team of four, there was uh, two guys, uh, an Aussie and a, uh, another lad called Theo. And the first night rowing, they rode past us, right next to us. And um, we didn't see them till right at the very, very end. And we beat them in. And uh, so we was kind of racing each other, quite, quite, uh, especially towards the end. Of the row and became quite good friends uh, with them and uh, Theo come up with the idea of um, kayaking the length of the Amazon to coincide with the 100 year anniversary of the Not Forgotten Association. Okay. So that's the idea behind it and he asked me if I'd like to get involved. No, it was a bit his arm off. Was it in single man kayaks, double man? Yeah, single man kayaks. There's 10 kayakers, two or three support crew. Um, obviously things have changed uh, and out of the um, I think there's three bootnecks myself Vinnie Manley and Lee Walters and uh, a cow who skippered my first row and uh, he's, he's obviously a very very close friend now I was going to say you can't really call women cows these days can you <laughs> I was like, That's okay <laughs> No, uh, yeah, cow as in the uh, the rubbish vegetable. Oh, uh, right, cow Royce, yeah. <laughs> that's his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so cow and me, he, he skipped our first row, and um, like uh, we rode two on two off together uh, every you know every day for forty seven days across the Atlantic, and we uh, I didn't once put headphones in, didn't once. Um, drift off we just chatted and laughed the whole way across and we didn't have one crossword which is quite very very unusual in an ocean rowing which is a can be quite a stressful <laughs> stressful situation yeah i can imagine you have you got lots of support crew and stuff that are going to be coming along with that or is it kind of um you're just going to carry all your stuff with you and you do no, stopovers we've got a, a thing called a pecky pecky boat uh, being built it might be built already uh, which is the traditional local um, 
powered boat, which the support crew will be on. We'll be we'll take rations. We've got rations supplied by uh, Expedition Foods, uh, which is the same kind of rations that we took across. It's basically Norway rations, freeze dried food, high energy. That's what I took across on both Ocean Rows. Uh, but we'll also be buying stuff as we're going down. Um, there's there's lots of habitation all the way down. Uh, where we're going from, which will be from Peru out to Manaus on the Atlantic coast. Oh, nice. You, you've been doing, well, ever since you've kind of had your accident, you've been doing lots and lots of work with the charities, haven't you? Yeah, actually, um, it all started with a dog in Afghanistan, believe it or not. I um, Same as most servicemen who, you know, don't have a need for the charity it's not on your radar and you know it's only when everything goes wrong that all of a sudden the charities you know mean something to you but i'd not really thought of doing anything for, for any charity really and i certainly would not have thought of myself as as actually being able to do anything um uh and it's probably something we'll talk about later but i've i've never I never looked upon myself as a um, a particularly fit bootneck, and I mean fit for as a bootneck. I've always, always struggled, not struggled, but I've always worked really hard to maintain basic fighting company fizz, and um, it's never, never come naturally to me. You know, you get guys who'll just go out and drink and smoke, and and then they'll go out and run six minute miles. I'm the opposite end of that spectrum. I have to graft and work hard to maintain basic fighting company fitness. And um, so I've never considered myself as someone who would do things for charities. I didn't think I'd be able to. But it was, um, uh, I found a puppy in Lashkagar. Just, it, it was stuck behind some wires and you and you human natural human reaction is to just reach out and grab the puppy and, and i was doing uh i was actually on an operation very minor low level one but on every operation that i was do, that we do uh, you got someone monitoring the net uh, like the radio in case something goes wrong and uh like they could hear us talking about this dog and then when i came back into um uh, the camp at Lashkagar. The whole debt detachment turned up and was like, wow, we've got a dog, brilliant. And I got lumbered looking after it. And uh, I sent an email out to uh, friends and family saying, look, I've got a dog. Can you send me some worming tablets, flea tablets and everything that you need? And uh, I'd never had so many parcels, you know, <laughs> people, you know, you, like parcels when you're out on ops, they're your lifeblood of morale, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I hardly got anything for my family or friends. But as soon as you show me a picture of a puppy, I was inundated. And uh, amongst all the things that I got, I got an email from my cousin Matthew, who told me about it. He'd seen Crafts on the telly and a uh, uh, former bootneck, um, Penn Farthing, started a charity called Now's Had Dogs that was bringing dogs back and cats uh, that kind of get adopted by the lads out there. So he put me in touch with uh, Penn, and I put my then puppy in a taxi in Lashkagar. She got a taxi from Lashkagar to Kandahar, and then via Kabul, um, Islamabad, and then back to, uh, uh, what's it called, Axminster, just off the 303 where she was in kennels. 
so we used to go and see her and then basically that's just picking that puppy up a weird small little action that actually changed my whole life because uh when i got back i said to him it obviously cost a lot of money and i said i was like you know what can i do to help and he said i try and raise some money so first thing i've done was a sportif on my bike uh it was the exmoor beast again organized by marcus Dizin- Di Vincenzo, I think his name is, former bootneck PTI. Yeah. And um, really enjoyed it. Uh, never done anything or never thought about entering anything like that. He's never been on my radar, but I really enjoyed it. And then I kind of um, I felt a bit guilty asking people to donate money, their hard-earned money, to an animal charity when there's, you know, like you've got kids with cancer and you've got the Royal Marines charity there's military charities the um the poppy appeal all the but I got a a check from um uh a guy that I served with for years uh Aussie um ML called Oz Palmer and I sort of wrote him back and says, mate, thanks so much for that. And he said, no, anything for the lads. I'm mega up for that. And I'd never really considered the charity for the lads. But, you know, um, Penn wasn't bringing the dogs back for the dog's sake, although it's obviously a big part of it. But he was doing it because the lads formed that bond with them and it was really to help the lads. So I then decided, I thought, well, I'm going to do another one because I enjoyed the sportive and and badgering people for money I, I quite enjoyed doing that i done a um i ran a marathon over the moor on christmas eve and i ran from oakhampton camp to where i live where we're recording this in horrorbridge to my local pub is exactly 26 miles all cross country and um i've always wanted to run a marathon so i've done that and it just so happened to coincide with one of the heaviest dumps of snow we'd ever had up on the moor over Christmas. So, you know, coming across the top, um, uh, I was wading through quite deep snow and the halfway points about um, Post Bridge in the middle of the moor. And I was running from Oakhampton Camp to Post Bridge in like training in about two hours, two and a half hours. And that was taking it quite easy. And... Uh, took me seven hours on the day to get through all the snow and uh, I cracked on from there but I, I got the bug and then um uh six months before I lost my leg there's a uh, where, where we live now where where I am now it's the former Mary quarters for 4-2 so there's lots of old bootnecks who live uh, in the village and around and there was a um a lad uh, called Dom Lovett who uh, he's, he's a lad in well, I can't remember when it was. Uh, he dived uh, into a snowdrift in Norway, um, obviously drunk, um, but he uh, broke his neck and he was a, a virtual paraplegic. So he had very um, little movement in his arms, but essentially paralysed from the neck down. And there's a the, the leading robotics specialist in the world just happens to be in Plymouth University. And they were trying to get a, a robotic exoskeleton to turn um, Dom's fo- uh, uh, little movement and control that he did have in his arms to try and 
get a little bit more control over that to give him a little bit more independence and there's a group of guys in the village got together and said well you know is there something we can do and I'd already run a marathon so I couldn't um, do that I had to do something more bigger and uh, Eddie Izzard had just run 47 marathons in 47 days so I couldn't do like two marathons on two separate days so the only alternative was to run two marathons so I ran from the pub to Oakhampton Battle Camp and then ran back and so I'd, I'd done a few other things as well for the Royal Marines Charity so my association with the charity the Royal Marines Charity and, and doing stuff uh, for the Royal Marines Charity uh, was like well established it was part of my life and I like you know really had the bug um, when before I lost my leg so when I lost my leg it just seemed a natural next step was to continue that. So I set myself in laying in hospital bed. I set myself a goal of raising 10,000 for the one Wings charity in the first year of being, you know, uh, an amputee. Um, and then it kind of led on that led on to other things. And, you know, you, you, you push through one door and they tend to lead to a corridor with lots of other doors. And then you push through into another one and, and that's it's one of the things that this, you know, since losing my leg, one thing that I've, I've definitely learned and, and, and understood is that, you know, opportunities, when you push and open that door, they lead on to other opportunities that lead on to other opportunities. And I now find myself doing things and contemplating doing things that I'd never in my wildest dreams have thought that I'd be able to do. Yeah, those doors definitely open, especially if you're not being self-serving as well um i think that if you do you know like like you're saying that you're naturally wanting to do to help other people even though you know now you do have a disability or, or even before that you know when you start doing those things and people see that like you're saying that's when the the good things come sometimes um no i don't know not always uh well, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in fate. So you know what? I'm not. Are, you know, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I kind of, I kind of believe that, um, you know, that there's a path that's kind of set, and but you choose those strands that come off. That let's call it like a, a, a string, a branch of a tree, right? So the main branch of the tree is kind of like your lifeline, and then the little branches and stuff that come off. Sometimes you have a another decent branch that comes off that takes you that direction and then these are these little bits that lead you off in different directions i couldn't disagree more no? i <laughs> i i earn a living now talking about things that have happened to me and i still sit down like you know you put a video on during your talk and i still sit down and go can we can i swear no you swear yeah, yeah I, I, I look and go holy shit how, how on earth did any of this happen? You know, and I, I'm still, I still think about my life and think that's bonkers. And I'm a firm, absolute firm believer that good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. I've seen too many examples of that to believe that there's any rhyme or reason in the universe and shit happens. And, for me, it's never been 
a choice. There is no other choice other than to get on with it. You know, you can't change. When, when I lost my leg, thinking about the bad luck and how, you know, why me and, and all that was as alien to, if you ever wanted to be out to fly like Superman. Yeah, I guess when I was little, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, imagine how amazing that would be. That you may as well get upset about not being able to fly as you are about stuff that's happened because you can't change it. There's no way of changing it. It's, you know, so sat there moping about what might have been. You may as well mope about the fact that you can't fly or you, know, you haven't got a lightsaber like Luke Skywalker. You know, it makes as much sense. So I think that's that's possibly the only difference is that luckily I, I had that mindset and and realistically, you know, when I remember laying in, in the hospital bed more or less straight after this happened. I think I was still in intensive care and I thought about all the the most important things in my life and if I put them in order, you know, where on that list, how far down would your bottom white leg be, you know? So actually, you know, putting things into context as well helps uh, with that mindset. But getting back to fate, you know, and, and you might be right and I might be wrong, but I, I've seen no evidence of any kind of sense or any any rhyme or reason in the universe. I can't see any anything that's that makes sense to me. I mean, I'm not saying that you know the 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 fate that I kind of see in my head. I'm not saying that that is directionally good or directionally bad. What I'm trying to say is that you have sort of like a linear path that you know you're kind of on but then you go off in lots of different directions things happen to you you know like you you know you lost your leg that happened to you but now you're in a new direction that that you kind of taken now whether something has taken you that way whether you were already on that path to go on to that I'm going super deep here aren't yeah, I? yeah. <laughs> but you know that, that, that that's that's kind of my point is like you know Every, if we go down the lines of fate, right, everyone's natural instinct when you talk about that sort of thing, that there is a path that is designated for yeah, you and that's, that's, that's what you go along. But that's what believing in fate means. So I, I kind of believe that the line is set for you, but there's lots of different things you can do off that too, but it still brings you back to the line that you were, that you're supposed to be on. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> let's talk about something else. <laughs> yeah. Go right, on. Let's go. Let's go right back. So uh, where, where did, where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Dagenham in, um, it's kind of East London. It's a London borough, but a Essex postcode. So it's kind of on the edge and nowhere. <laughs> All right, cool. And, uh, you know, growing growing up as a kid, you know, were you active? Were you like the outdoorsy type? Um, 
no, I, I actually uh, had a really difficult childhood. Um, my dad was a violent alcoholic and he used to beat me, um, my mum up and uh, quite, you know, quite badly. And um, I was, was pretty much rubbish at everything that I attempted. Um, I wasn't, uh, we mentioned earlier about not being um, a natural athlete, should I say. You know, I, I love football and, I, you know, I was just rubbish at it. And I, I thought I'd be good at cross-country running and I was rubbish at that. I was just rubbish at everything, everything I ever tried. I wasn't academic. Um, so I actually, you know, struggled quite a lot when I was a kid. Um, and... I've, the big thing for me and why the Royal Marines became such a big part of my life was when, when um, uh, my dad used to beat my mum up, she used to cry for me because I was the eldest. She used to cry for me to come and help. And what was I, about five, four, five, six. And my mum said that I used to um, like stand, freeze in terror. And I uh, sort of, a belief that I'm a coward is so deeply ingrained in me. It's so much part of who I am that, you know, I, I kind of dreamt of being a brave person. And, and the, uh, the, the epitome of a brave person when, you know, for me growing up was a Royal Marine. So that was my dream, was to be uh, someone who was brave and, and to be a Royal Marine. So that, that's, uh, that's where that dream came from. It was a dream as well. I remember when I was, um, uh, was you 13, when you take your options at yep. school? Yeah, yeah. And they have like a career <laughs> fair, don't they, where they bring in all the different people. Well, Fords in Dagenham was uh, most people left school and went to Falls, or a lot of people did. Um, but as well as them, you had the uh, the Army, Navy and the Air Force there. And also there was a bootneck there. And I went straight up to the bootneck and said, well, I want to be a Royal Marine. And he said, um, OK, he goes, uh, are you the captain of the football team? I was like, no. He said, the rugby team? I said, we haven't got a rugby team. He went, oh, uh, are you in the football team then? I was like, no. And he went, mm, you're not really what we're looking for. We're looking for the captains of the sports teams. I was like, oh, he goes, sorry. And he goes, oh, can I have one of the brochures? Uh, and he went, no, I haven't really got any left. There was a big pile of them behind him. I was no devastated. Way. But the, um, the, 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 the Royal Marines as a serious career choice for me then and there vanished. It had gone. I was told by someone who was a Royal Marine, whose job it was to pick people to become Royal Marines, told me that I wasn't what they were looking for. So as a, as a serious career choice, that had gone. If he doesn't know what um, what being a Royal Marine, what you need to be to be a Royal Marine, then no one knows. And But I never lost the dream, never ever lost. And um, What set you on that path as opposed to saying, I want to join the Army or the RAF? What what in, what sort of like put that ingrained into your head to go up to the guy that was a Roma and say, I want to be that as opposed to the others? All right, my dad um, used to drink in the British Legion. My granddad ran 
the local British Legion, and it was a big part of my life growing up. And um, like, despite like my dad being a violent alcoholic, uh, I idolised him. He, you know, without being an apologist for a wife beater, um, you you know, you say like my dad was a violent alcoholic and he beat me mum. That's in pantomime villain. But he wasn't. He was a far more complicated character, and he was actually, you know, when he wasn't drinking, he was a he was a wonderful, lovely, funny, intelligent, kind-hearted. And and despite being a wife beater, he had a he had a weird but very deeply ingrained morality. And I know that sounds bonkers. Um. But I, I idolised my dad. The other thing about my dad, and again, this is another contradiction in terms, he was, when I grew up in Dagenham, there was a real hard man culture. You know, oh, he's a diamond geezer. And my dad had a, had a fairly big reputation. Uh, before I joined the Corps, um, there was a period where I left work and was working behind the bars in, in local pubs, clubs and that. And as as part of the round of showing you uh, around the pumps and how to change barrels and that would be the local who's who and who to look out for. And I used to end the conversation with um, Johnny Spencer's son and they'd always go, oh, oh, sorry, I didn't know that. So um, when my dad used to drink over the British Legion, I used to um, go over and that's where I used to see him. You know, it was the only, the only place you could guarantee where he'd be was the local British Legion. But he used to sit on a table with a load of old bootnecks from the Second World War. Um, they used to call it their table, the Royal Marines mess deck. And every day, every lunchtime, like, they'd all sit down and they'd all tell stories uh, about their time in the war. Never about fighting, always, um, always like shenanigans. The, the core hasn't changed and the lads in the core haven't changed, genuinely haven't. And I used to be sit there and, and absolutely mesmerised by them. And, but the the thing for me was like the British Legion moves. It was um, nearly everyone in there had fought in the war, you know, when I was a kid. And all the other cat badges and services, they all had their little associations. But there was something different about the Royal Marines. They all sat together. None of the other cat badges done that. And they, and they had a definite identity so I kind of grew up with that and then uh, when I was 13 12 or 13 you had the Falklands War happened and and that was the core were front and center of everything that happened then so it, it weren't I didn't just want a career in the armed forces it wasn't about I didn't look on it as a good way of traveling or a, a good life or something like that I I wanted to be a brave person. I wanted to be a Royal Marine. I didn't want the Royal Marines wage. I didn't want the Royal Marines career prospects. I didn't want I didn't want anything that the Royal Marine life gave you. I just wanted to be that person. If I if I explain that. No, well it's enough, perfect, yeah. yeah. And and, and it, so that's why the army or the other armed forces ever came into it it weren't about a career it was about being that person identifying myself as a Royal Marine and that came from um, 
an absolute core belief. You know, it was fundamental to my makeup that I believed I was a coward. So when you went and spoke to the guy at the armed, uh, the careers convention that you went to and he turns around to you and you're like you had your heart set on it that you wanted yeah. to join and he turns around nah nah you're not what we're looking for that must have been pretty dashing really yeah it was yeah but I'm, I'm I'm kind of I was used to uh failure and disappointment I thought I'd be a good cross-country runner I don't know why I used to run I used to run everywhere and and do things and in school, they had like for the um, the trials for the cross country team. They just sent everybody out on this route, and as you came back in, they gave you a number. And there was, I think, it was about ninety four kids in my year, and I came fifty third. <laughs> That's something that I I thought I'd be good at, and um, you know, and, and and that's something that I tried at, and I came fifty third. Uh, football. I love football. I played football all of my life. Um, and I played football for a Sunday league team. I sent a forward for four seasons. I played every Sunday. You know, I missed a handful of games. I sent a forward. I scored two goals in four seasons. I've been absolutely crap at everything I've ever tried. Um, and... So actually being told, I think I'd have been more surprised if he'd have said, you're exactly what we want. I, I uh, They weren't only then. Uh, I, saw, I left school and got a YTS, youth training scheme, um, for those that can remember them. And they, uh, I, and it was in a job I hated. I worked in a lab and like just as a general dog's body with no qualifications whatsoever. And I absolutely hated it. And I hated being that person who worked there. And uh, I went to the careers office at 18. And I didn't get past the interview stage. It was Chief Petty Officer Smith in the Holborn office in London. And he said, you're really not what we're looking for. And it was only... Um, like, there was uh, another, another weird coincidence, very much like finding a puppy in Afghanistan. Uh, me and a friend of mine, we, uh, a lad I went to school with, we ended up on a mountain called Kadu Idris, which is, it's, it's widely regarded as the most picturesque mountain in Snowdonia, in Wales, actually. It's beautiful. And we, we ended up, a long story, but long and short of it was, we ended up uh, stuck on the top of it at night. And... We had a, um, uh, we watched the sunrise from the top of uh, Cadwydris. And that moment changed my life as significantly as losing my leg, I believe. And I remember walking back to work, then, uh, when, like a couple of days later, walking down to the station to go to work. And I looked over my left uh, shoulder and I could see the sun rising over some waste ground. And it was beautiful. And I, I remember thinking, I've walked past that every day for like five years. And that's the first time I noticed it. And it got me thinking. And I, I got on the train. And when you commute in London, you get on the same seat on the same train. And so does everybody else. So you sit opposite the same people. And I sat opposite these people for nearly five years. 
And I thought, this is mad. And I said, hello. I said, morning to this person. I went, oh, morning. And it, it was almost like a set of dominoes that were just waiting to fall because then everybody started saying hello. Um, and then when I got off uh, my station, which is Euston Square, where I worked, I was rushing and I, and, and I just suddenly caught myself and thought, I'm rushing. I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a mad rush here. And I realised that I've been rushing for five years. I've been working there. And I looked round and everybody else was rushing. And, it, and that all came about. That uh, that thought train came about through uh, watching the sunrise on top of that mountain. So it was, it was up until then, by far the most beautiful and, and, and amazing thing I'd ever seen. And uh, within... I, 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 that day I made the decision. I, I very soon gave me noticing at work and thought, well, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And I was waiting for another job to come along. And uh, I thought, I'm going to blink and I've done this job for 10 years and then I'm stuck doing it. So I left and um, I thought, I started working behind the bars in, in uh, Dagenham. And I thought I'd give myself three months to get as fit as I possibly can and give it one one last go. And I went to the careers office and um, got straight through the interview, got put on a potential recruits course. And that was then the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. And uh, got to the end of it. And they used to call call out your names. And so the first set of names they called out was like, never darken our door again. Then the next ones were come back in six months. And then it was come back in three months. And then they called my name out as those that had passed. And I was absolutely gobsmacked that I passed it. But I passed it by every one, like the, the old USMC test, every one of them, I just scraped in so I, I, they called out a few names for people to go back in and see uh the uh call sergeant major and um we went through uh he went through all my scores on everything and i'd scraped in on everything and looking back on it now now you know how these things run on the last day when they take you down on the bottom field and just thrash you until people give up he followed me everywhere so I now know they were looking at the people who were borderline and he thought right I'll come and have a look at him and um I can remember him like walking around with me and uh I just didn't give in and I've, I've always I now know that I've always been good at that not giving in and so he went through my scores and he says look you know you're gonna have to improve on your press-ups and everything like that and he goes, uh, uh, this stuck with me all the way through training. And he says, right, you can go. And I turned and walked out. And before I got to the door, he went, Spencer. And I turned around and I went, yes, sir. And he went, you're going to be a, he swore, you're going to be a fucking good bootneck. And I went, oh, thank you. And I walked out there, my head massive. And I don't know if he'd done that because he genuinely saw something in me or whether and what I probably suspect, he wanted to give me a little bit of a boost. Uh, but that stuck with me through training. And once I got in training, I, I absolutely flourished. I, it's, I sort of found something that I was good at. 
finally, <laughs> after after a whole childhood of finding something that I might not be, or not, I would have settled for not crap at, and that was uh, not giving in, just keeping going. Do you not think the hardships that you suffered at, you know, up to that point was, you know, you kind of gained that mentality that not not giving up because, you know, you you, you have brothers and sisters. I've got a sister. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about your father and, uh, and what I did to your mum. If you hadn't have done certain things and I guess you would have protected her as well in a sort of a subconscious manner as well uh, and going through those trials and tribulations it just sounds like you've kind of not acquired you've like you've just gained that mentality as you've gone through those different I, things I get... being told not to do something and then actually going do you know what fuck you I'm going to go and do it. The night I left for my potential recruits course, my uncle and aunt came round to see us um, at my mum's house. Well, my mum and dad split up uh, when I was seven. Um, and they'd come to see uh, my mum. And obviously I was like full of it. You know, I was next day I was getting, a, I had a Val warrant to go to Limston Commando. Even the name Limston Commando on the train ticket was was like amazing to me. And my uncle said, he went, you'll not pass. He goes, they won't, you won't be able to stick the discipline. You'll not pass. Uh, they're, all not, they're not interested in you. You're too old anyway. How old was I? 21. Because you're too old. They ain't going to be interested in you. And that, that drove me in training um, and that that wanting to prove him wrong kept me going. Apart from that, um, I never had that confidence in myself really to want to prove people wrong because as, well as, as well as believing that I was a coward, believing that I was crap at everything was also a uh, deeply ingrained within me. I get asked to speak about resilience. It's massive in the corporate world, you know. Um, and I, I, um, and, and and it's something that I thought about a lot because I talk in schools uh, about failure, and it's one of the um, one of the things I think that you know builds resilience is picking yourself up and going again is constantly failing and that's um you know when i go in schools that's what i talk about a lot you know i in schools all they talk about is success you're going to be a great success to get on in life you need to do this and to be a success in life and i thought you know kids nowadays they, they need to be taught how, need to learn how to fail because like especially social media, it's it's a different world out there because all you see, all they see of each other is what they post on social media and it's all, look at my successful life, look at my successful family car, look at my successful family holiday. And if you're not got that, which no one has, no one has that perfect life that's portrayed on social media, it's really, really difficult for kids to kind of come to grips with that. So when they do fail, they feel that they're failing, you know, and there is no, there's no upside to that. 
where the the thing that the the biggest gift I've got, apart from not giving in, what goes hand in hand with that is I'm a dreamer. I've always dreamt. Like when I when I was told at 13, you're not what we're looking for. I never lost that dream of being a Royal Marine. That's really important. I never lost the dream. It was still my dream. I didn't pack it up and put it away. The, the actual practicality of being a Royal Marine as a serious career choice had gone. You know, that wasn't for me. I was told that wasn't for me, but I, I never lost the dream. So it's, for me, resilience is built through constantly failing and picking yourself up. When, when things go wrong for me now, like with the last row, I was I was ready to go on the um, 18th of January 2018. The weather was looking good. Everything was going right. Um, three days before on the 15th, my mum died, like quite unexpectedly. And I had to fly back to the UK and postponed everything. Um, but I picked myself up and went again. And then I went out in November that year. And I sat looking out at sea for a whole month, waiting for a weather window that allowed me to row out into the Atlantic. And it didn't come and I had to postpone it again. And then I finally got away in January last year. And five days into it, the whole of my navigation system, every electrical component on the boat just completely failed. And at that point, when it happened, I thought that was the whole row. So I've worked two and a half years constantly for, I thought it all gone. But I was used to it. I'm used to things going tits up. And when you get used to it, you kind of just pick yourself up and go, okay, let's crack on. As it turned out, it wasn't the end of the road, but at that point, I didn't know then. Um, Guinness, well, the Ocean Rowing Society, uh, all ocean rowing records are, if you're solo, it's solo and unsupported, not solo, unsupported and non-stop. No ocean rowing record is non-stop, so you can stop for essential repairs. But obviously the clock is still ticking. But at the point, I didn't know that. So when everything went wrong, and when my mum died, and when I didn't get a weather window, and that's just talking about one specific thing, that's just that row. Things go wrong. And it does seem, it, it does seem that they go spectacularly wrong for me. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Um, but things always go wrong and it's resilience is built through knowing that things go wrong and just picking yourself up and going again. So that, I don't know about any mental steel or anything like that was built into me as a kid. I think it's more of a, nothing more than just, <laughs> just getting used to things going badly. And when when they do go bad, you just go, oh, well, that's kind of normal for me and pick yourself up and keep going. Yeah. the uh, I think a lot of the stuff that, that you're talking about, I don't think mentally you really know um, 
you've you you kind of understand what's going on with it because i think you've got that subconscious from what you're talking about there and that resilience and uh, and that will to sort of like carry on i think it's it's just ingrained in you you've just not recognized it and you still got it now like you know through through being in the being in the core one of the things that you were um, saying there about things going wrong, but you just kind of suck it up or and, and you get on with it. The classic cliche, improvise, adapt, overcome. Do you know one of the biggest lessons um, I learned in training for me is, I, I remember, you remember Running Man? I don't know what yep. they call it. It's my boys in training now and they changed all the exercise names. Yeah. The, the, it's <laughs> kind of, it was kind of like a survival X and a um, Yeah, no, I do remember X. it, yeah. yeah. And I remember like going out and doing a Navex and coming back in and you know, sitting around the fire shivering and the uh, troop officer would come in and he'd say, right, such commands on me. And I remember thinking then, quite matter-of-factly, not a dramatic, oh, no, I can't do this. It was, if this is another Navex, I definitely can't do this. I have hit my absolute limit of what I'm capable of doing. And it was another Navex, and we went off and done it. And I remember coming back in and being surprised that I'd done it, thinking, wow, I didn't think I'd do that. But I definitely, definitely can't do the next one. And then it was section commanders on me, and I think, really, right, well, I definitely can't do this. After three or four times that happening, and, and being pleasantly surprised that I had actually completed it, I realised then, I kind of had to kind of um, and sort of get to grips with the idea. I probably don't know what I am capable of. And that's the biggest, biggest lesson I learned in training is I don't know where my limit is. Okay. Um, I might think it's there, but I'm wrong. It isn't. And there's, there's a quote that I, that I was listening to Desert Island Discs and... Um, is it Steve Backshaw was on there? The guy who um, always works with Aldo, uh, Aldo Kane. Oh, right, okay. Steve Backshaw, is it? I think it is. He, it was him on Desert Island Discs. And he quoted someone. I can't remember who the quote is from. But it's when you are absolutely at the end of everything and you've given absolutely everything, you're probably only about halfway through. You've still got that again to give. And that's so true. And and training gave me that. And training gave me gave me the the confidence and the understanding that I don't know what I'm capable of. And what we're all capable of, you know. And if if and uh you know, I keep saying it about me not being a natural athlete. But that's what that's the biggest lesson that training gave me really i think um that what you don't realize especially if you don't come from a um from a background where you know you were like let's say like a high level sportsman you know the average middle class you know kid that comes up he you know joins recruit training and i've used the analogy before of it's like um, a tick list. The hardest thing you've ever done is a four mile run at a 10 minute mile pace. Boom, done that. So the next time you go and do something like that, 
you'll always look back and go, do you know what? That was actually quite hard. But it's but it wasn't as hard as this. And then it's another tick yeah. in the box. And then you're talking about those navexes, those navigational exercises. You know, you go, oh, I didn't think I would be able to do that. Right, it's a tick in the box. I did five back to back. Brilliant. So the next one, you're like, that. well, I just did five back to back. I've had a couple of weeks off now. I've got a couple to do. Yeah, it's not going to be as hard as that. Boom, it's ticking the box. So each time you do something that's really, really hard, in the back of your mind, and this is the way I use it, it's a little tick list. So whenever you come to do something, you know it's going to be absolutely belting. You're going to be on the bones of your ass. You go, well, actually, I've done something similar to that, and you can compare it. Do you ever think like that? No, it's compl- It's very different to that, and I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, my next thing that I'm planning solo, um challenge i'm calling it the triathlon of great britain so i've tried to combine the three biggest challenges in britain in one thing uh, into a triathlon so swim the channel get down to land's end as quickly as possible cycle land's end to john o'groats but going via snowden and scarfield pike mm-hmm. and then a marathon over ben nevis and finishing at the commando memorial and i want to do it in 10 days so that's basically swimming the channel cycling land's end to john o'groats and the three peaks all in one big challenge. Excuse me. I'm not really a swim. I can swim. I'm not really a swimmer. I know that I can't cuff this. I'm going to have to train. But I have no doubt that I can swim the channel. That I'm, I might get halfway across and pull uh, a muscle and, and have to drop out. Or there might get bad weather or the currents might send me. You know, something might go wrong. So I'm not, I'm not stupid and believe that I can do it on this day. But I know that I can swim the channel. I know it's within my capabilities. I've never swam further than a couple of lengths, you know, than anyone else. I'm, I'm not a big swimmer, but I know I can do it. But it goes beyond that. Um, I don't know if you saw in the news uh, last year. An American woman swam, it was either four or five times. That's the record now. She swam the channel non-stop four times or five times. And I looked at that and thought, well, no one swam the Irish Sea. A bloke done it in a wetsuit, but that's not recognised by the Ocean Swimming Society. Um, or the Society of Ocean Swimmers or whatever it is. So therefore it's not counted as a record. To count as a record, you have to do it in speedos um, and a swimming cap. There's all sorts of um, regulations. And that's in the back of my mind. Swimming, something no human has ever done. I'm not a particularly good swimmer. But I think it's possible. That, That... that's stupidly optimistic, isn't it? Thinking that way. But that that understanding that I don't know what I'm capable of. I don't know where my limit is. No one knows where the limit is. You don't know where your limit is. People will listen to this. You don't know where your limit is. That's, for me, that is a fundamental belief. It's the, it's the cornerstones of everything that I believe now. And that came through training. So it's not looking at something and going, right, I've done this, I could go one better. This is off the Richter scale, stupid. <laughs> Thinking that I can, I can swim. 
across the Irish Sea. But that's that's on that's on my radar now. I've not even swam the channel. If I'd have swam the channel and thought, oh well, imagine if then there's some kind of logic to that kind of thinking. The this is off off the Richter scale stupid to believe that it's possible. But I do. And I'm not even you know, I'm sat with Baz Gray at the moment and we want to keep this one under wraps. But there's a massive record that no one's ever done. I don't want to say too much about it. But a lot of it involves um, uh, walking to and from the poles. <laughs> and uh, I think I can do it. I'm going to have to go out with Baz and be proven that I can't do it. I've only got one leg. You know, so there are things that I can't do. But because of that fundamental belief that that I got in training, that confidence that the Royal Marines training gave me in understanding that I don't know where those lines are, um, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to go up, you know, be shown, yeah, this is where the line is, you know, um, for walking anywhere, because it's obviously, I'm never going to be like, 400 metre hurdles champion with one leg you know there are obvious limitations to that but you take that away that that belief is still in me and that came from training where did you uh obviously you know passing out of training was was obviously going to be a, a massive accomplishment for you um you know how did how did that feel when you got to that end goal and you know that was kind of like that must have been your pinnacle focal point just to get that green barrier and, you know, pass out of those gates. Well, same as most people who join up, I looked around the people with me in my troop, 635 troop we were, and there was lads who, who boxed for their, uh, boxed for Wales, county runners and all these great sportsmen. And obviously I've been crap at everything I'd ever attempted. And I assumed, you look at the statistics, I assumed that, uh, that I wasn't going to make it through, you know, and I, but the dream of getting to the end that hadn't gone anywhere. Uh, the dream was still there. So it was that dream that carried me through. And I, I kind of was just glad every Friday that I was still there. <laughs> so towards the end of training, when I kind of flourished, um, really came out of myself and then started seeing the green beret getting a green beret is actually this is going to happen um yeah it's you know same as anyone you 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 walk out of limston bomb proof bulletproof and then you go to a unit and then you're straight back down to the bottom again. <laughs> you have to do that process all over again. Um, that actually that that really stayed with me. Uh, when I passed out, the corps hadn't really done anything since the Falklands. Um, there was Ophaven in '91, which I just missed. I passed out in '92, and nothing. That, you know, everyone really talked about and, and everything was 
base round the Falklands and there was a couple of, there'd be a few lads who might have had a contact, the odd contact in Ireland. Um, and they were spoken of with reverence, you know, and then the guys that were in the Falklands. Uh, and it was only really, uh, I, I was lucky enough to be a section commander in Charlie Company, uh, going into Iraq, the initial evasion, and leading a section off the helicopter going into the uh, Al Four Peninsula. That, you know, a re there was always that nagging doubt that, all right, I was, I was now a Royal Marine, but I still might be a coward. So it was only actually going through that process of going to war that I finally put that to bed. The feeling's still there, it's still there with me. But I can, I can look that feeling in the face, metaphorically speaking, obviously, and, and show it the hard evidence that I'm not a coward. And that, that's put it to bed for me. But it was only really, and uh, when was that, 2003? So I'd been in the Corps 11 years. So even, I thought that being a Royal Marine, being that brave, that person, that brave person, I thought that that would be the cure for um, those bad feelings, you know. But it wasn't because you have to prove yourself again. You go to the bottom of the pile. And the worst thing about being a Marine, if you've suffered from low self-esteem and you think that that's gonna, you know, help you, cure you, you can look, you can look that low self-esteem in the mirror and go, I'm a Royal Marines commando. You can to a certain degree, but the, 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 the you know, the flip side to that, or the downside to that is, you're now associated with and surrounded by absolute quality people so if you're i've got this thing that you know you've made it if you can say oh, i'm an average bootneck <laughs> if you can say oh, i am an average bootneck that's all anyone can ever dream of being and it was only after a rack really that put that to bed and i could kind of get on with the rest of my life i think maybe do you think there was something during the invasion of iraq you know i mean obviously you you it would have been the first time maybe that you've been in contacts and stuff during yeah yeah it absolutely was there was an apps sorry the, yeah go on. I, I've, I've assumed i know what you're going to ask no go on go for it right there is an absolute moment i can remember we we took the second building in the uh thing called the manifold and metering station in now four it's where basically all the oil in southern Iraq comes to one point and then gets pumped out to sea. And we captured it. When we captured that, then everybody rolled across their start lines. So it was like one of the most important uh, infrastructure uh, points to take. Um, there was a corner of a building and we was trying to get into the building, my section. And um, there was like me entry pair, uh, lad called Bucky O'Hare and um, Schnaggle, um, Tony Whitehead. I was like, I said to him, right, go. And um, Schnaggle said, I can't, I can't, they're shooting at me. Apparently, I, someone heard me shout, oh, fucking shooting back, dickhead. <laughs> but that don't sound like something I would have said, and I've got no memory of saying it. And my 
to I see was a lad called Titch Cormack. Like he, he then went on to a massive career in uh, the SBS. He was a hoofing bloke. And it sounds like the sort of thing that he would have said. Um, so he's a lot cleverer and a lot more witty than me. And uh, But by the whole of uh, the company HQ were behind this bun line and they heard me say it, apparently. But it was at that point I realised we... That he was getting shot at from this corner, and I we had there was no way round it. We had to go round, and I had to. I could not, and I knew I couldn't command anyone to do something like that. I had to lead my section round, and I led us. We peeled round, and I led us round. And when I went round that corner, I genuinely, genuinely believed that I was going to get shot, and I'd be coming back the other way. But there was nothing I could do. I was here. No one else was here. I had to lead my section. No one else was going to lead them. So I just... There was no... It was a matter of fact decision. And I went round. Actually, I'm not entirely sure we were in contact. <laughs> I think a couple of lads were flapping a little bit. But that's just in hindsight. At that moment. And that's the important thing. I, and I know this, and to, to to kind of put this into context, if there was any chink in that armour, my low self-esteem would wheedle its way in there, and it, and it hasn't, and this is kind, this statement is bomb-proof, I genuinely believed that I, I, there was a very high chance I was going to get shot. And I confronted that, made the decision and led my section round. So that's the point for me personally that put that to bed. Um, as I say in hindsight, I'm pretty certain we weren't. <laughs> and a couple of lads were flapping a little bit and thought they were. But that's not the point. It's what I believed at that point, um, at that moment, uh, which is the important part of that since then I've done three tours of Afghan and, and obviously um, you know being in contact uh, the novelty of that somewhere's away <laughs> yeah it definitely does isn't it <laughs> yeah let's talk about that a little bit because you um, you, you went from you went from Iraq um, obviously you had quite a few scenarios there like you know many of us did during those Afghan and, and, and that that early Afghan and Iraq time, it was kind of like the Wild West around the Middle East around that point, yeah. wasn't it? Um, just talk a little bit about, you know, you went from being in the Marines and then you went and did something else, didn't you? Something a little bit different. Frank is a true inspiration as a human being, overcoming adversity mentally and physically. Please tune in next week for the second part of the podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider and also follow The Grumpy Surfer on Instagram. Thanks for listening.